0: Hi guys, my name is Casey Ritter, recovered alcoholic. Um, I was telling thank my thanks to to Matthew for having me come uh, on this. I was, I told him, I mean, I've done a lot of Zoom meetings, but I haven't really spoken for an hour at people where you can't hear any laughter and response. So let's just hope that this goes okay. <laughs> um, I um, I'm really glad to be able to come on and be able to connect with other people that are just the the coolest thing about this this covid business is being being able to go to meetings with people that I just don't get to see very often and it's been pretty badass um, i've gotten to sit in w- with meetings with people who were some of the people that carried the message to me when i first got sober who taught me what it meant to be a recovered alcoholic who helped you know pull me with a vision of recovery and to to Get to do that in a time where it feels like everybody feels just so disconnected and the the world is so horrible. I've actually seen AA be this really incredible just connector. And so I don't want to get too far in the weeds with that, but anyhow, thanks to Matthew and I'm psyched to be here. Um, so as you, um, as you, as you notice that I, introduce myself as a recovered alcoholic because I was taught in the very beginning that I could actually recover from alcoholism. And I just wanted to talk a little bit about that today as I share my story and hopefully, you know, be able to share a little bit of inspiration for other people out there and just talk about my experience with the steps. At the end of the day, like the front of our textbook says it as clear as day, the story of how many thousands of men and women have recovered from alcoholism and i i think it's so unfortunate that sometimes we get the idea that if we own that out loud and say that we can recover that that's somehow jinxing us or making us look like we are too sure of ourselves and really all it's saying is i can recover from the seemingly hopeless state of mind and body that is alcoholism It, it at the end of the day We get to come in and really just find out, are we actually alcoholics or not? Because the truth is for a long time, I, um, I started getting loaded when I was 14 years old and was effectively loaded every day for 10 years. Um, which to a young 14 year old brain is really fabulous. Strongly recommend that. No. Um, And so when I, when I finally landed in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, I, I frankly had no idea what alcoholism was. I, um, my uncle said he was in, in AA. Um, he was the most miserable person that I had ever met in my entire life. He had not taken a drop of alcohol in eight years. Um, and pretty much to, to now I, I now know Never really went to meetings, definitely never sponsored anyone else, and really didn't have any program of recovery aside from, you know, going to pick up a chip once a year and maybe saying that he was sober. Um, And so for a long time, I was really, really confused about what alcoholism was. And uh, when I first walked into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, I got sober in the Texas Hill Country. Um, so for any of you who are, who are interested, Texas has some fantastic recovery. Please feel free to come visit us down here. We sure do enjoy it. Would love to share some of that. Um, I think one of my good friends was actually just on here a few weeks ago talking. So it was, um, that's pretty cool. But so I, I land in the rooms of, of Alcoholics Anonymous and I'm, you know, about 24 years sober. And I'm an absolute Gothic princess. I mean, I come in, I'm wearing, you know, fishnet tights and, and late high lace collars and all black, everything. I'm wearing all black in the middle of summer in Texas. Let me tell you, I was a ray of sunshine. Um, and I walk into this first meeting. It was really the first meeting I'd ever been to. They took me on the druggie buggy as it were, from the treatment center that I was at. And I land up in this room where everybody's saying that they're recovered alcoholics. And, you know, at one point I decide, I'm going to, you know, raise my hand when they asked, does anybody here, you know, need, need a sponsor, you know? And so I'm like, of course, sitting in the very back and I raise my hand about this, this high, like, oh, I guess maybe me. <laughs> um, and it was so cool because the amount of women that descended on me in that first meeting because I one I had raised my hand. I later found out I looked so much like a first step experience that they knew I was new regardless. <laughs> um, and so they come they come up to me afterwards and they want to know all of these things about my life. They start asking questions like, "Oh, so who who are you? Nice to see you here. We, we're glad you came to this meeting." Um, you're looking for a sponsor. Are you, are you willing to go to any lengths for recovery? And I'm like, I don't even know what that means. (laughs) Um, and they did this really cool thing where they went straight into the book, which I didn't know at the time, and they qualified me. They helped me figure out whether or not I'm the alcoholic that it talks about in this book, or if I'm just some chick who drinks a little bit too much. Because the truth is, and I, I so don't mean to take shots, but there are a ton of people who walk into AA because they have a problem with alcohol who are not the same type of person as I am, um, which I later came to find out. So um, if we look on page 20, I'll just, for those of you that have your books, I'm going to keep busting into the big book because that's where I know the solution is. So when in doubt, go there, right? So very bottom of 20, it's going to give us these three different versions of drinkers. And it says, Moderate drinkers have little trouble in giving up liquor entirely if they have good reason for it. They can take it or leave it alone. Okay, so I was super clear that I was not, in fact, this person, right? Done. I know I'm not the person who can take it or leave it alone. Then it says, then we have a certain type of hard drinker. He may have the habit badly enough to gradually impair him physically and mentally, It may cause him to die a few years before his time. And then it says, if a sufficiently strong reason, ill health, falling in love, change of environment, or warning of a doctor becomes operative, this man can also stop or moderate, although he may find it difficult and troublesome and may even need medical attention. And so I, I honestly think this is the big, this is the big thing that a lot of us get caught on. Because I, I had really had no, no understanding when, when somebody sat down and asked of me, asked me like, can you on your own willpower stop drinking? My honest answer before I had really gotten into this AA thing was yes. I mean, of course I can. That was what I thought. Um, and so I was lucky because I had these women who, who stepped back and said, Oh, really? That's interesting. So let's talk about this part. So, what about, have you been able to stop as a result of ill health? And you guys know what psoriasis is, right? It's, it's the worst. So I had psoriasis over 85% of my body for like a year. It was this really, I mean, horrible, horrible experience. And I can tell you as a very vain at the time, 21-year-old, it was kind of cramping my style. Um, so of course this you know horrible medical condition. I go to the doctor. I say, doctor, you've got to help me. I mean this is the worst thing in in the whole world. If you talk to my to my friends, you know even at that time my drinking was already way off the charts, and they would say stuff like, Casey, I mean like why are you drinking like this? This is I mean you're just really out of control. And I would be like, do you see what's happening to my skin? I mean, I, I look horrible, and they would say, yeah, God, I guess I would drink too. But I go to that doctor, and what do you think the first thing it is that he tells me not to do if I want to get over the psoriasis? Drink. He's like, you know, if you want to get over this is an autoimmune issue for this particular type of psoriasis that you have is actually very sensitive to alcohol, might want to cut it out. I could not. With all of the vanity in, in the world and all of the desire that I had for this horrible, itchy nightmare of psoriasis, I couldn't, I couldn't stop drinking for that. Okay, so I can't answer the ill health question. The falling in love. I don't, I don't know about anyone else, but before I got sober, let's actually be honest. For a good portion of my sobriety as well, well as before I got sober, I fell in love like six times a day. I mean, I am was very much the type of person that I'm in an A meeting, new boy walks through the door, and I'm automatically in love with this person. He sits next to another girl and I'm like, Well, he's cheating on me. This is very rude. Um, I'm picking up curtain patterns immediately. And so there were many times it it by, by all approximation that I had fallen in love, but could not stay sober for the boy, no matter how hard I tried. I tried to change the environment. I tried all of these different things and I couldn't manage to stop drinking. And so when they asked me whether or not I'm this just general hard drinker and they line this out for me, I can say pretty clearly this is not me. Um, I think unfortunately, sometimes we end up with a lot of hard drinkers in our fellowship who are never properly qualified because somebody won't take the time to sit down with them and find out, like, are you the person that needs a spiritual experience to get well and recover? Or are you somebody who just needs to have something bad enough happen so that you will stop? Uh, My experience is I had a ton of bad things happen from a very early age and could not stop for any of those reasons. So it goes on to say, but what about the real alcoholic? He may start off as a moderate drinker. He may or may not become a continuous hard drinker, but at some stage of his drinking career, he begins to lose all control of his liquor consumption once he starts to to drink. And then it gives us this awesome description on the rest of 21, just going into wrote a book about me how nice of them they just really understand who I am um I I was particularly drawn to the part where it would they do a good job of this book of really playing up to the ego in the beginning right where they're like oh he is a um he often possesses special abilities skills and aptitudes and has a promising career ahead of him I was like oh yes this is clearly me um which is funny because I, I think sometimes if we listen to what the media says, right. About alcoholism, if we, if we pay attention to what we see in movies and books and TV, you know, it's, uh, essentially a lot of times alcoholism looks like it's an alcoholic who lives under a bridge and their whole life is trash and everything about them. has just gone to hell in a handbasket. Um, my experience was that I was, Making straight A's at the best university in Texas. When I went to treatment, um, I come a come from a very very good family, very very good family. Um, my parents are still married. I mean, if you if you take a look, I had money in the bank, I had a good job, I had a nice house to live in. I essentially had everything on the outside that anybody could possibly want as a 24-year-old woman, and I just could not stay sober. And so uh, I'm I'm really grateful because as I started going through the work with a sponsor, they really keyed me into the stuff that it started talking about on page 22, where it gets to this real question of why does he behave like this? if hundreds of experiences have shown him that one drink means another bo- debacle with all its attendant suffering and humiliation, why is it he takes that one drink and I think that's that's the number one thing I think a lot most people want to know when they come into our fellowship and 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 my hope is that I can do as good of a job as, as the women did for me when I came in to really experience. to them why that is because it's not that i just you know there's all these triggers everywhere that just keep triggering me to drink that's not what it is it's not that i need to put the plug in the jug and just try to stop none of that stuff is effective for the type of alcoholic that i am um because I have this thing called the mental obsession, right? And I remember them explaining to me what this mental obsession was. And it was kind of like this light bulb just went on. Like I could just suddenly start to understand why I behaved this particular way for so long. So I, um, about 18 months before I got sober, I... I decided I'm going to go and dry out at a detox center. Right. So, and and I, I mean, like I am called into school, went on for, I don't know what you guys have in Canada, but in Texas, we have this like FMLA, which basically means you submit paperwork to the government. You're going to go and, and step away from your work and your college and cool mental health. Right. So I go to detox and I think I went to one AA meeting when I was there, and essentially all I heard—I have no idea if these people were carrying the solution or not. I was just had zero interest. They said something about never drinking again, and I basically said, "Well, this does not sound like it's really for me." Um, but I, you know, in my head, I really, really did want to get sober. I was, I was so willing to get sober that I was willing to call my parents and tell them that I could not stop drinking, and and take a semester off of college when I had a a 4.0 and was doing really well and was top of my class and try to go do this thing. I stayed sober for 43 days. And the reason why I know how many days it was is because it was the most 43, like miserable 43 days I had ever had in my entire life. Um, I was just the absolute queen of white knuckling, trying to, you know, like get through this. And I think that most alcoholics or people who find themselves in this, in this fellowship know what, know what that feels like. That just unbelievable. I want to stay sober and I know that I have to. And then you guys kind of all know where this ends up. Cause I don't end up, you know, sober for another 18 months. So, um, My, I was in, I lived in Austin, Texas, which basically means I was super cool and was in a band like everyone else in the entire city of Austin, Texas. And we were, we were on tour and absence had just been legalized. So like in Texas, it was the first time absence been legalized. I've been sober for 43 days. And I, I think to myself, I, you know what, I can totally just have like one of these, right? And you guys know where this goes from here. That ended up being like an 18 month long drink. <laughs> um, and so it was, I had this such clear example of what the mental obsession was. And it talks about it really, really clearly on 24, where it says the fact is that most alcoholics for reasons yet obscure have lost the power of choice in drink." our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. We are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force, the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. We're without defense against the first drink. And it was, it was so clear to me once I got into the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous with all these badass recovered women that that is exactly what happened that the mental obsession hit, I had no effective mental defense against the first drink. And I took it thinking that I'm going to take that one drink and then everything's going to be okay. And of course, you guys know the physical allergy gets set off. Here I am now stuck in the entire cycle of this insane, you know, restless, irritable discontent. And then I take a drink to try to fix it. And then I take another drink and then the drink takes me and, um I, I think if there's, if there's one thing that often gets misunderstood, it's that, it's that mental obsession piece. And and I, I think a lot of times I don't live where you guys live, but I can, I can tell you, I moved to back to Houston, which is where my family lives um, about three and a half, four years ago. And when I came to Houston, I've moved a lot of times in recovery. And when I came to Houston, I went to a ton of meetings, right, because we're in the process of trying to, you know, find a new home group and, and, you know, meet some new people, build a real fellowship. And um, I sat in a whole bunch of discussion meetings where people were essentially asking, how was your day in the meeting? Which is fine to before or after a meeting, just talk to someone about how their day is. That's great. But there was no real solution for anybody who's new coming in as to what to do if they have this illness called alcoholism. And nobody was talking about the mental depression. And um coolest thing, my, my home group is the Clear Cut Directions Group. Um, it's a primary purpose big book study that is founded off of um, Cliff Bishop and Myers Ramers. Uh, Group in Dallas, Texas, and um, I walk in and I see a guy who's got a leather-bound big book that's just the 164, just like I do, and I'm like, I found my people. (laughs) And they were, you know, the same thing as the place where I got sober. They were talking about the mental session. They were walking up to newcomers, um, and it was really wasn't so much just about let's find a place to sort of moan about our day and let's actually get connected and create a place where the newcomer can come in and hopefully experience some God. And my, um, my good, my good friend always says, uh, says this just as his sponsor did. And I truly believe that meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous should be where we're, we are there to be cheerleaders for the power of God in our life. Um, and, and my experience is that I came in and I got sober and I was the most depressed unhappy wearing all black person that ever existed. And now I am the, you know, this happy free person, um, who no longer has to worry about, you know, the next drink just right, right around the corner. And then I get trapped by it and I'm still wearing all black and I feel good about that, but at least my insides do not match the outsides at this point. So that's fine. Um, so I, uh, Like some people, not like all people, certainly not like all people in Texas, we are, um, there is a lot of people who are in other religious organizations in Texas. And so when I was in treatment in Texas, I was one of, I think maybe only two people who were like real deal atheists. So I walk into AA, a 100% I do not believe in God. You are absolutely ridiculous. If you do believe in God, that's just a crutch for your life. Um, so it was a real funny sort of trick when I found out that actually God was at the center of this whole AA thing because they really did. They, they did the whole like bait and switch, right? They're like, hey, don't you think you have alcoholism, mental obsession, physical allergy? And they're like, oh, what? Now you need God. It was so... <laughs> It's interesting, so I I come in and what I always think about when I think about step two is this part on 48 where it says right in the middle of that first, before we even get into the first real paragraph, it says, faced with alcoholic destruction, we soon became as open-minded on spiritual matters as we we tried to be on other questions. Um, In this respect, alcohol was the great persuader. it's very funny because if I look back, I would always, I was, I was a, the artsy gothic girl. So in my head, I'm very open-minded before I get sober. I mean, I just can't even tell you how open-minded I think I am in my head. Come to find out, I have a lot of prejudice when it comes to just even the word God. But alcohol was the great persuader in my life, right? So alcohol convinced me in my experience with understanding what a first step actually was convinced me to be willing to try this God thing. And I remember going and sitting in this, the um, person who carried the message to me at this, uh, this place in Texas, that where my home group ended up being, I remember talking to him. And, you know, I had just, I, I, I had this, such amazing experience with step one where I finally understood what, what it was to be alcoholic. And I go sit down with him. I'm like, you don't understand this God thing. It's just really freaking me out. I'm supposed to turn my will and my life over the care of God. As I understand him, I don't understand this guy at all. What are you asking me to do? And he says, baby, are you willing to work the rest of the 12 steps, the best of your ability? And I said, Sure. And he was like, all right, that's great. Get out of my office. Thank you. <laughs> um, and come to find it actually was really as simple as that. Um, I I think that sometimes we we make it seem like people need to have this really incredible conception of God in step two before they can move on to step three. Um and that's actually not really what our book is saying at all, is it? Our book is actually saying that if you can find a starting place and be even just 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 willing to consider the possibility of something greater that can restore you to sanity, then you're well on your way. We've got you, let's try and do this thing. And so I, um, the, the funny thing is, We Agnostics, which was the chapter that gave me so much difficulty when I first got sober, is actually the chapter that i love the most now Um, because if you go back and read this the whole chapter is just filled with all these really incredible nuggets of what it's like to build a relationship with god and what it's like to challenge your agnostic temperament because the truth is there are still times in my life today where my temperament is agnostic and um meaning that I don't know that God is going to show up and then of course when I don't know that I start showing up in a, a kind of a crazy way um, really good recent example I, I think sometimes uh, I think sometimes we do do a disservice to the newcomer by only talking about things like that happened years ago and not necessarily talking about things that happened recently, Um, because I know that when I go into meetings, one of the things I love about my sponsor so much, her name is Patty, is that she will absolutely let me in on how like the current areas of unmanageability in her life, right? This is my sponsor, and she doesn't come to me at this place of like, I'm so spiritual, and I meditated five hours earlier this morning. No, she's like very clear. I'm like, hey, I just read some inventory to my Sponsor on this thing. Do you have inventory um, that you need to write? And so, uh, recent experience. I I recently got married. Actually, my name is Casey Da Silva. I literally got married a month ago, and I keep forgetting that that's my new last name. So the day before we get married, where we um, somebody also put an offer in on our house a week before. So a week before we're getting married. An offer goes in on, on my house, I'm trying to sell my house, I'm trying to buy a house, I'm trying to get married. We pull up outside of my house the night the the night before the wedding and the empty lot next to our house has a huge sign on it that basically says they're gonna put up a commercial real estate property next to my very small, tiny house that's gonna look down on it. It's the last day of the option period on our home, which I don't know if you guys have something similar, like, similar to that in Canada, but basically that's like the very last final day that these people can get out of this offer that they've made and lose no money. So um, let me tell you what, my agnostic temperament was off the freaking charts. I I basically lost it and acted like a crazy person, so we like drive back over to my parents' house. you don't understand what's happening like I'm trying to get my is going on, and it was just <laughs> it's just really funny how how insane, even though we know that God is here for us, even though we know that and we have experience with that in people who are sober, we will forget that in those moments where we don't get what we want like. What I want is this. Don't you understand that I need this to happen, which is kind of this perfect little segue into well, what I later ended up learning about third step, right? It was like, okay, being convinced, it says on 60, right after what we read, being convinced of all these things, these ABCs, we were, we were at step three, which is we decided to turn our will and our life over to God as we understood him. Just what do we mean by that? And just what do we do? And to be honest, I didn't have a damn clue when I first got sober. My apologies for my uh, my language. I, I, I had no idea what it meant to turn my will and my life over to God. How would I know that? But what they do is they give us some really clear instructions on how that actually happens and what we actually go about. They actually, they even say, just what do we mean by that? Just what do we do? And then they explain it. And so they go on to um give us some really clear concrete ways that we may show up when we're trying to run the show ourselves and i tell you what i may not have understood step 2 particularly well but i was really really clear on all of this like <laughs> when it started talking about being the person who wants to run the whole show and arrange the lights the ballet the scenery and the rest of the players in his own way um When I'm sitting down with a woman that I'm sponsoring and they don't immediately identify with some of this, I'm like, Ooh, this is going to be a fun one right? (laughs) because it's going to be a really fun, interesting inventory experience to get, to get to sit down with someone who doesn't kind of already get the glimmers of what we may be talking about here. And, um, you know, let me tell you the, level of amends that I had to make later that night after I pulled up and saw this huge sign out of my house for acting like a crazy insane person. And I, before I got married, um, they were quite nice, but I made them as quickly as possible <laughs> and, and, and got to move on. I, um, you know, I think that when I first got sober, it was, I mean, resentment inventory just totally changed my life. I mean, it just, it just absolutely changed my life to write a four-step. Sometimes I'm really, really sad when, you know, like you, you hear people talk about in meetings, like the newcomer, and they're like, oh, I'm on my four-step. And the whole, like, meeting is like, oh, God, that's so horrible. I'm like, no, the four-step is the best stuff because that's when you're out about to figure out what it is that you can do to stop being so insane. I mean, that's the real that is the whole thing. What is so amazing, it's like our troubles are basically of our own making, which means that if we can stop doing a lot of those crazy insane things, we can actually find some freedom and go out and be really helpful people. And that's pretty badass. And um I mean, I was I was the type of person that when I first got sober, I wrote it, you know, Sixty pieces of resentment inventory because I was angry as hell at every single person that had ever existed, all political parties, Disney. Why? Because it gives us false hopes. I mean, I just like the. Um, I was just writing inventory on literally everything, and um, I found out when I wrote sex conduct inventory that I'd basically dated the exact same person many times over and over again, but wearing different outfits, which was fun. And it's actually really interesting because I, and maybe I'm just reflecting on this at this point because I recently got married, but um, the amount of growth that I have had around that sex conduct area and relationships in the past 10 years since I got sober has honestly been something miraculous and actually a little bit slow building that I never could have anticipated when I first got sober. I wrote my first Sane Sound Sex Inventory, and it, you know, Sane Sound Sex Ideal, as I was told to by my sponsor, and um, she, was, she was really clear to point out to me the things that it talks about on page 69 when we look at inventory. Um, it says, second paragraph down on 69, in this way, we tried to shape a sane and sound ideal for our future sex life. We subjected each relation to the test. Was it selfish or not? We asked God to mold our ideals and help us live up to them. We remembered always that our sex powers are God-given and therefore good, never to be used lightly or selfishly, nor to be despised despised or loathed. Whatever our ideal turns out to be, we must be willing to grow toward it. And my problem in relationships is that I was always looking for somebody else to fix me. I wanted somebody else to make me okay, and I tended to, this is not the case for all people, but this was the case for me, seek out really unhealthy relationships, which lasted well into recovery, so fun fact, at about four years sober, I, um, I had been dating somebody from Canada for four months and he was like, I need a green card. We should get married. And I said, that sounds like a great idea. So I've been dating somebody for four months sober and got married to this person. The marriage lasted about a year. So it didn't really turn out so well, but I, but again, I think that's one of those things like, some of the biggest mistakes I've made in my life have been things I've done when I'm sober, when I'm even actively seeking God, just because I got sober a couple of years ago doesn't mean I'm not going to make some serious mistakes. Um, and I'm really, to be honest, extremely lucky that I had followed up and have this next component that it talks about in 70. So if we're in 70, second paragraph down, it says to sum up about sex, we earnestly put Pray for the right ideal, which means that I have got to ask God to show me who it is that I'm supposed to be with in my life and for guidance in each questionable situation for sanity and for the strength to do the right thing, which means that sometimes the unhealthy person that I want to date is maybe not necessarily the one that God has in store for me. Um, and it goes on to say that if sex is very troublesome, we throw ourselves harder into working with others. I actually think on more than one occasion that has saved my ass. Um, we look over at page 89, it actually tells us um, first sentence of working with others. It says, practical experience shows that nothing will so much ensure immunity from drinking as intensive work with other alcoholics. Intensive work with other alcoholics, which means that if I, if, if those times, when my life is crumbling down around me, if I can continue to sponsor people that I will find that I'm placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected, and will, will not return to the next drink. And that's why I think it's like, so it's literally so, so sad when I hear people talk about you can't sponsor anyone for a year, you can't sponsor anyone for five years. Like where are these meetings where people there's people who are five years sober and that can sponsor people. Like I, I just, I was, um, I started sponsoring people at 90 days sober because my sponsor told me that if I did not, I needed to get another sponsor. Um, the really funny thing is I actually think that the first girl that I ever sponsored, I sponsored her for like six months. She I believe she's still sober today, which is just as, like literally has nothing to do with me. It's because my sponsor told me, you need to go do this. If you want to be a part of this fellowship, you've got to show up, suit up, and then give back what was so freely given to you. I honestly think that we, man, if you're not getting a little bit fired up to go help the new person, you are doing it wrong. <laughs> I mean, that spending time with newcomers and giving away what you've been given, is that is the real treat of this fellowship. That's what that's the feeling that i did not realize i was coming here for and i i there is um there's been times at because it, because i've been sober for a while i i stepped away from the fellowship of alcoholics anonymous for like 6 months in order to do another spiritual thing right like i was like i'm good with AA, I've been sober for a while. I think I'm fine. Like I'm just gonna go over here and like do a lot of prayer and meditation and really be in this great, you know, my relationship with God is so amazing. Um, and I'll tell you, my my prayer life was was incredible at that time. My meditation life was on point, and I was talking with God in ways that I hadn't before. And at the same time, I was not sponsoring anybody, because I was no longer in AA and the wheels just slowly started to come off. It wasn't that I was like going to drink or that I was worried I was going to drink alcohol. It was that I like the insanity started to slowly creep in. If anybody knows what that's like, where I just now, now I start thinking, "Does, does my boss hate me? He, he does, doesn't he? That girl looked at me weird. Like it, it's just so like the strange the way that resentment starts to build in my life where I start thinking that other people don't understand my great worth <laughs> or um, you know, clearly I should be running this company, but I'm not. And you know, and and so I um I was really, really grateful that when I stepped away, my sponsor who same sponsor I mentioned before, Patty, um, made it really easy for me to come back. She didn't shun me when I stepped away. I stayed sober for that six months. Um, she didn't tell me I was a horrible person and she didn't cut me out of her life. We still talked. And when I said I wanted to come back, she was like, all right, we're here for you, buddy. You know? Um, and I, I really, I'm really grateful that She was willing to act without judgment towards me in that situation, which is particularly funny because um, my sponsor is not a super lovey-dovey, I-hope-your-life-is-great kind of a person. (laughs) She is very much will tell you the truth, whether you like it or not. Um, She is from the Northeast. And she is kind of a firecracker. She will just tell you the truth. And what I've come to learn over time is that I would way rather have somebody hurt my feelings with the truth than comfort me with a lie. Um, and those are the types of people that I tend to seek out friendships with today, which I, I think is cool. Because in in the days before I got sober, I, I only wanted people who would lie to me. I wanted people who would I could maybe attempt to manipulate or they would give me what I want or God knows what, whatever. And um, I, I'm really grateful that I was brought to this place of understanding that if I can swallow and digest some big chunks of truth about myself, I'm probably going to be a happier person. So um, I, having having gotten recent, recently married, um, I literally have the nicest husband in the whole world. But the funny thing is, it wasn't until about five years sober that I even realized that maybe I should att- attempt to ask God if having a kind person as a significant other was a good idea. This is very interesting. Like my, um, you know, my sponsorship family, we are not big on, I don't, I'm not going to tell you who to date. I, you date somebody day one, day two, one year. I don't know. That's none of my business. My only business is to help you figure out if you're being selfish, self-seeking or dishonest or afraid, which is the same thing that my sponsor did for me, which is why when I decided I was going to marry the, the guy, you know, years ago at four months sober, um, there, er, that I'd been with for four months, she politely told me the truth. And I said, to hell with you, I'm doing it anyway. And she said, okay, have a good time with that. I'll be here when it blows up. Um, but I, I, uh, I I'm really, really, really grateful that she did that. I am really, really grateful that my sponsorship family has always been really clear on what sponsorship is and what it is not, because I think the lines can get crossed. I think that if we are to believe what the big book says and that the, the way to ensure immunity from drinking is to sponsor other people, we can hear that and then hear that, oh my gosh, I've got to sponsor other people and then do all of these insane things when I sponsor that person. In other words, I thought that if I was going to sponsor someone, I had to have all this like great, amazing insight and experience to share with them on their life problems. But I'm not their therapist. You know, like I'm not your life coach. I'm not your therapist. I don't know any of those things. My only job is to take you through the steps. And I think that sometimes we can make sponsorship seem so difficult that newcomers who we should be encouraging to like come in and help some people like feel like sponsorship's too scary when really it's like, to be honest, half the time it's just you taking that person's inventory, which you're really good at anyway. (laughs) We tend to be very good at seeing other people's selfishness it's our own selfishness. That's the problem. Um, and so my job isn't to, you know, to tell anybody who they should date or who they shouldn't. It's really more to just say like, well, kind of sounds like you're being a little bit delusional right now. Um, it's really actually not very difficult at all. Um, and I, uh, at, so I, I got married to that guy, the, uh, Years ago, the guy i had been with for four months, and I was starting to get really clear words in my prayer meditation. Life is, it's, you know, a huge part of this recovery. You know, thing it's really maintain this conscious contact with God, and wake up in the morning and at night and be connected and inventory our day. And um, I started to get a really, really clear word that I needed to go seek some therapy for other things unrelated. To alcohol and I'm really, really grateful that I had a sponsor who did not try to therapize me around those things. She was like, "I cannot help you with any of what you're talking to me about right now. please go seek a therapist um, and and it's funny because I really wanted to at the time i'm like i 'm so recovered like I don't need to go and do any of those things. Like I just need to do AA and write the inventory. But it's funny because if we are to believe that this is about getting connected to God, we have to be willing to listen to the things that God tells us in our prayer and meditation life. AA is just supposed to be the basis for how we get that relationship. So it's like, if I am spending time in prayer and meditation and I find out things like, Hey, maybe this is an unhealthy job for you. Or hey, maybe you should check out therapy. Or hey, maybe you should try this religious thing that you have always really hated. That's some information for me to take in because those are things that God's trying to disseminate. And um, I'm just really, really grateful that we don't have to, as sponsors, um, have any great any any great insight for somebody. That's not what we do. We're supposed to direct somebody to God so that God can give them that insight. Um, I I moved I moved back home to my family. I when I turned 18, I don't know if anybody else did this, but I turned 18 and I got the hell out of there as fast as I could. (laughs) I moved far away from my family. I was like, I don't want to have anything to do with these people. You're insane. Um, I was clearly the one who was insane. Funny that. Um, and today amends looks like in my family actually showing up and having made a direct amends, you know, years ago, but actually showing up as a changed person in my relationship with my parents. Um the I don't know about anyone else, but the first person that I wrote in resentment inventory on was my mom. She was like the first person at the top of the list, you know, mom. A lot of times with guys, it tends to be dad um, the way that it works out sometimes. And, um, I see my mom, you know, maybe not with COVID, but, you know, multiple times a week, we have a very good relationship. Basically nothing has changed about my mom. My mom smokes, you know, all kinds of outside issues on a daily basis. She drinks quite frequently. She is not a picture of mental health and we have a fantastic relationship. Guess what she hasn't changed at all i'm the one who who's changed and stopped trying to make her fit into what my expectations were of her and finally now i'm able to have a healthy relationship where I can you know at, like show up as a as a good kind person who's going to clear the table after dinner and help take care of my aging grandmother and be supportive of them and not just sit around taking my brother's inventory in front of them. Um, I I don't think that any of these things that I've learned over the course of time would have happened if I hadn't sponsored other women. I don't even think it was me being sponsored is what changed. It was sponsoring other women and becoming more and more familiar with this book as a result that I felt encouraged to do my own um, inventory and to continue with prayer meditation. I mean, that, that is the, the best and most incredible part is if we will allow God to come in and do this work on us and go share it with someone else, he's going to constantly reveal things to us as we're sponsoring other people. So as we're reading the book, we'll start to learn the book more and then we'll uncover something great maybe about what God is and how we're supposed to show, to show up. I, um, I'm just going to end with this this one little thing. I I so appreciate getting to to spend this this time with you guys. But um, it says on 124. It says uh, second paragraph down, little little further away. It says, showing others who suffer how we were given help is the very thing which makes life seem so worthwhile. Now, um, my husband is a normie. And when we first started dating several years ago, he he just he just doesn't know anything about AA. And so, you know, I like a sponsor a lot of women and I would take these calls and you know, he'd be like, so I just wanted to ask, like when these girls call you, are they calling so that you'll like get them to not drink? You know, because like in his approximation, that was what sponsorship was like he thought that it's my job to sit on the phone with a sponsee and she's got a bottle of vodka and I'm going to try to get her to not drink it which is really nothing what sponsorship is like at all it's like you know no um, it's really about being able to show up and show them how to go and help somebody else and to show up and to be the very best version of themselves that they can in this life that they lead and that means calling people out sometimes when they're acting crazy and it means. Um, being a shoulder to cry on when something happens late at night and they need a second. And it means consistently being willing to be accountable and walk somebody, you know, with someone shoulder to shoulder. Um, and that is the part of life that is, that is so worthwhile says, um, cling to the thought that in God's hands, the dark past is the greatest possession you have, the key to life and happiness for others. Um, and my experience has been that even the dark things that I've done in recovery have been the way that I've been able to connect and show up for other women and support them with those things. I am I have found out today that I am uniquely qualified to help women show up who are atheists who have maybe dealt with some extra crazy on the side of AA. <laughs> Um, who have married somebody that they maybe shouldn't have, who've made strong mistakes in recovery by trying to walk away to other fellowships. It's not just the things that we do before. It's those mistakes in that dark past that we have in recovery that we can help somebody with too. And it says with it, that key to life and happiness for others with it, you can avert death and misery for them. Um, i So love this fellowship and I so appreciate getting to talk with you guys tonight. And thank you so much for having me.